0: Good morning, church. I bless you all. Definitely wanna thank you, all of you that are visiting with us this morning. For those of you that are visiting, the gentleman you saw giving announcements is not my twin brother. That is my father. He is my father. So, we welcome you. And we definitely wanna give a special thanks to Hank and the praise team for their uh, leading us in worship this morning. Thank God for them. Pastor Dave and Kathleen and the girls and Irene are in Maine. They were laying to rest uh, Granny June, um, Irene's mother, and so they were having that time together and uh, just was able to see some pictures uh, on Facebook. They looked like they were having a, you know, just a good time to be with family and apparently Maine makes really good clam chowder. So I can attest to that having not gone to Maine but definitely being uh, in Boston, it's it's pretty good up there. So we definitely wanna keep them in our prayers. And so as we do that now, would you, church, would you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord God, as we just sang, God, have thine own way in this moment, in this place, in this time. God, we thank you for this church. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is truth. And we thank you that we can freely open it and learn from it and be changed by it. God, would you do that now? Would you change us, Lord? Would you give us Christ this morning, Father? Help us to attune our hearts, open our eyes, oh God, that we may behold wondrous things out of your word, out of your law. Bless our time, God, for your glory. For we ask it and pray in Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. If you have your Bibles, please open them to Philippians. Philippians chapter one. We're gonna be looking at verses 27 through 30. Philippians chapter one, verses 27 through 30. I've entitled this message, The Gospel-Centered Life. The Gospel-Centered Life. And you know, being a Christian, means that we no longer live or belong to this world. Being a Christian means that we no longer belong to this world. We've been bought by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and are now citizens of a new kingdom. And this reality comes with new commitments, new desires, and a new purpose. Our lives are now centered on Jesus Christ and his purposes. But church, sometimes because we live in this world, it's easy to forget where we come from and what our purpose truly is. Because of this, it becomes difficult for others to tell where we really are from and who we really do serve. But if indeed we are citizens of heaven, our lives should reflect that truth. It should be evident. There should be identifying markers in our lives that that bear witness to our new citizenship. It should be evident that the world and to the world, it should be obvious to the world that we no longer operate under the world's system and according to the world's customs. I'm not talking about things like paying taxes and being subject to the government or anything like that. We certainly want to be good citizens and civic duty and that kind of thing, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm speaking about a difference in our values and motivations, things that set us apart from what this world system values and what this world is motivated by. In short, we need to live gospel-centered lives, gospel-centered lives. As we do this, we will bear witness to the king and kingdom to whom we really belong. And so church, my question for us this morning as we, as we open God's word and as we think together through God's word, my question to you all and to myself, to all of us as the body of Christ here, my question is this. Where are you from? Where are you from? If you've repented of your sins and put faith in Christ, then you have a new citizenship. And because of that, your life should be a sign to others that you belong to Christ and to his kingdom. So I'd invite you to take your copy of God's word. You should be in Philippians chapter one. Let's look at verses 27 through 30 together. Paul, under the Holy Spirit, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit writes, only let your manner of life be worthy not only, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. This is the word of God. And so my proposition this morning is this, Because we are citizens of heaven, we must live gospel-centered lives. Because we are citizens of heaven, church, we must live gospel-centered lives. In our text this morning, Paul is encouraging the Philippian believers to let their manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And what's interesting is the word Paul uses for manner of living literally means to live as citizens of. And this would have resonated with the Philippians because Philippi was a Roman colony. It was a Roman city and these Philippians took great pride in their Roman citizenship because of all the rights and all the privileges that it afforded them. They knew that being a Roman citizen came with duties and responsibilities as well. And Paul was saying to them, that as Christians, they also possessed a heavenly citizenship. I mean, in Philippians chapter three, verse 20, Paul makes that clear when he writes to the church, he writes to this Philippian church and he says this, he says, for I have no one like him who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. He says, for they all seek their own interests and not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy was proven, you know his proven worth. And I'm reading from chapter two. Let me jump to chapter three and verse 20 where Paul says this. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. I was looking at chapter two, pardon me. So we have a new citizenship. Our citizenship is in heaven and we await a savior, Jesus Christ. And so these Romans, these Philippians would have been very aware of the privileges that their Roman citizenship afforded them and they would have been aware of the duties and responsibilities of that Roman citizenship. But Paul is saying you have another citizenship that is more important. You need to live your life consistent with that citizenship. Their lives needed to be lived in a manner befitting of the gospel. And what I wanna say to you this morning, church, is that how we live gives testimony to where we're from and whose we are. And so in light of this, we must be gospel-centered in four ways. I wanna lay them out hopefully through this text we see that this morning, four ways. We must be gospel-centered in our consistency. We must be gospel-centered in our unity. We must be gospel-centered in our courage and in our suffering. And by gospel-centered, I mean letting the good news of our redemption through the shed blood of Jesus Christ radically influence everything we do. This is what I mean when I say gospel-centered. It is focused on Christ and his finished work his person and work while here in the earth and on the earth that needs to drive how we live our lives and so as we look at our text I want to make the first point because we are citizens of heaven we must be gospel centered in our consistency in verse 27 Paul says only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ and you'll recall just a few verses earlier, Paul said that for him to live is Christ and to die is gain. For Paul, it was all about the gospel. What he meant by that was that every facet of his life was motivated by serving the Lord Jesus Christ. To believe or, and to be alive on this earth meant complete devotion and commitment to Christ. As such, There was no contradiction in Paul's life. There was no discrepancy between Paul's profession and Paul's practice. What he professed, he lived out on a daily basis. His life was lived in a way that was worthy of the gospel. It was consistent with the gospel. And don't miss that word worthy. Worthy here means in a manner befitting or appropriate, suitable, Worth as much as or weighing as much as. And this concept wasn't new to Paul, this concept of living a life worthy, living a worthy life. This wasn't something new to Paul, but this was something that you see occurring several times in his letters. In Ephesians 4.1, he said, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. In Colossians 1.10 he writes, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. First Thessalonians 2.12, Paul says, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you. What was the exhortation? What was the encouragement? What was the charge? Walk in a manner worthy, worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. What Paul was stressing was that their lives needed to be lived in consistency, in a consistency with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And church, that's true for us today. Our lives too need to be marked with this same consistency. Now, what I'm not suggesting is you know, that we, we follow these rules legalistically or, you know, in some way do these things to earn God's favor. That's not what I'm saying at all. But rather that our realization of what we really are and whose we really are come from how we live. Our realization of where we're from bears itself out in how we live when you understand that you have a heavenly citizenship because of what Jesus Christ purchased for you on Calvary, when that reality settles and solidifies in your mind, in your desires, in your heart, it begins to radically affect how you live so that the way you live is consistent with the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what Paul is calling this church to. He had just told them, listen, I'm in a quandary here. I mean, to to live is Christ, to die is gain. I don't know what to do. If 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 I'm to live on, it means fruitful labor for you. If I die, I get to be with Jesus. Either way, Christ is honored in my living or in my death. Jesus Christ is magnified. And so there's no inconsistency there. Church, we cannot say one thing with our language and another with our lifestyle. You know, several years ago, I uh, got the chance to go to Jamaica for my grandmother's 80th birthday. And uh, I I haven't been there, been back since then. This was 2006, somewhere around there. And it was a great joy to be back in the place where I was born. And now I kind of know how to speak Patois a little bit. You know, I can kind of fake it, you know. I mean, I could fool maybe some of you but you can't do that there, so I thought it would be a good idea to give it a try with some of my cousins, you know, Wagwan mm, wa, and all this kind of stuff, and you know, trying to make make it sound like I'm an authentic Jamaican. You know, I can do this. They immediately started laughing at me. Like, what are you talking about? Because evidently I was doing a horrible job at it, even though I was born in Jamaica. I didn't grow up there. So I didn't have a grasp of how Jamaican spoke. I didn't get that vernacular, that, 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 the rhythm, the cadence. I didn't have it and it was evident. They saw that and my cousins made me aware of it. I think they use the word foreign or, or something like that. You're not from here. But what I'm saying here church is that there was no consistency between my citizenship and my language. And I wonder sometimes if that's not the case with our Christianity. We've been born again by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit, and have a new citizenship, but because our minds are not set on the things above, we don't act like, talk like, or look like people who are citizens of heaven. There's an inconsistency there. And that, that ought not be. You know, we become so enamored by our earthly dwelling that we forget about our heavenly one. When we claim to be Christians, but our lives are not consistent with our claim, we are not living in a manner worthy of the gospel. When there is discrepancy with our words and our walk, with our actions and our beliefs, We're not living as Paul is calling this church at Philippi to live, live in a manner worthy. He says only, only, that's the first word in the text, only. It's like, listen, this is what I I need you to understand. Only let your lives be lived in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. I wonder if some of you told your coworkers that you were a Christian, if they'd be shocked by it or surprised by that information. "What? What, really? never knew. Wow. (laughs) Or if some of the people you hang out with found out that you were a follower of Jesus Christ, would they be able to say, you know, yeah, I see it. I see it. I think theologian Alec J. Motyer is helpful here. He quotes, he says, why should people believe our defense of the cause of Christ if they cannot see Christ in us? or take any notice of our offering of a saving Christ if they do not see the fruits of salvation in the beauty of holy living. We want people to get saved and we're, we're gospel inspired and fired up, but we got the proclamation down, but the living it out is important too. That's why Paul told Timothy in chapter four, first Timothy 16, he says, keep careful watch over the teaching and yourself. other words preach right doctrine but also live rightly those two things go hand in hand and so I hope we see because we are citizens of heaven we must be gospel centered in our consistency we can't be saying one thing and doing something else they have to match and be in alignment with the gospel but secondly I want us to see that because we are citizens of heaven, we must be gospel-centered in our unity. And this is huge. As a matter of fact, the book of Philippians, one of the major themes of Philippians is unity. Joy is another one. Paul was concerned about this church's spiritual growth. It's why he says, I'm convinced that I need to remain with you so that you can, by me and by my ministry, progress in your faith. He's concerned about that. But one of the things that's so important, one of the things that's vitally important in the church, in the body of Christ, is unity. And so another factor that shows we are living lives worthy of the gospel is our unity. Notice in verse 27b, Paul writes, he says, So that whether I come to see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. You know, it was Paul's hope that he would be able to return to these Philippian uh, Christians. He was hoping that this verdict, as he awaited and sat in that Roman uh, uh, imprisonment, hoping that the verdict would go well and that he'd be able to be released and go back with his Philippian church that he had started. What Paul is saying here, Either way, it it, it doesn't matter whether I'm there or whether I'm not there. You need to be unified. It was Paul's hope that he would return to them. But the outcome of this, of his circumstances, was still uncertain when he wrote this letter. He was still waiting to be heard before Caesar. Paul's desire was to depart and be with Christ. But he was convinced that remaining on in service to Christ would greatly benefit the spiritual growth and progress of the church at Philippi. He says as much in verse 24 of chapter one. But Paul says regardless of if he's able to return to them or remain apart from them, the thing that he wanted to hear about was their unity. And notice the two words that Paul uses to describe this gospel-centered unity. Don't miss these two words. The first one he uses is standing firm and the second one is striving. And these two words present two helpful pictures of unity. The first one, standing firm, is a military term and the other one, striving, is actually an athletic term. Standing firm means to hold one's ground, to maintain a position, to be steadfast, upright. And the picture here is of a soldier who is committed and resolute and resolved to stand their ground and not leave the post regardless of the opposition. It was they were lockstep together in unity, in their cause. They were unified in their positions. But how were they standing? How was this church supposed to stand firm? Well Paul tells us, he says, "In one spirit and with one mind." In one spirit is not referring to the Holy Spirit uh, here, though don't be uh, mistaken it is certainly through the Holy Spirit that we have unity. It is the Holy Spirit that enables the church to be unified. However, I think Homer Kent Jr. is helpful. He points out the source is not what is stressed here, but the result. The word spirit here can be interchangeably used with the word soul or mind. And Richard Mellick Jr. is also helpful. He says the word spirit is used in parallel with the word soul and thus refers to the attitude that should characterize the church. Our attitude needs to be unified. We have the same disposition, the same attitude, the same thinking. The point is that there should be no divisiveness within the church of Jesus Christ. Unity should be one of the hallmarks of the church because church, God is eternally unified. There is no disunity within the Godhead. And as such, we must see to it that no disunity exists within the body of Christ. Living a life worthy of the gospel of Christ means that as best as we know how, we should labor to preserve unity. Ephesians 4, 3 says as much that we are eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And so when Paul says in one spirit, he's talking about their attitudes and dispositions toward the goal. And you think about, uh, you know, the military. If somebody's not in in alignment, if somebody's doing their own thing and they're out on on a mission or on a particular endeavor and somebody goes rogue, all kinds of problems can ensue. It can get very dangerous very quickly. And so Paul gives that imagery of standing firm in the gospel. But what, what kind of message do we send to the world, church, if we are in disunity? This world is full of disunity and discord. This world is fallen. Brokenness all around. What an indictment on the church if they look here and see the same fallen, broken, disunity that is out there. We ought to be unified. This world is full of disunity and discord, but that ought not to be the case with the church of Jesus Christ. But notice the second word Paul uses. He says striving, and this word means to contend together, and it carries the imagery of athletic engagement. And Paul was probably thinking here of the, the games. He was used to seeing the Olympic games and, and how teams would come together to achieve uh, a goal. You think about the relay, there's unity there. If the guy doesn't want to take the baton, we got problems, right? We, we, we all have to work together to achieve a goal here. And this word literally means to struggle along with. Just as a team cannot accomplish a common goal without each other, neither can the church. Church, we need each other as we exist in this world. We need each other. We gain strength and encouragement from each other. So unity is vitally important. And notice the shared objective here. It is the faith of the gospel. And what Paul means here is the body of truth that is embodied in the gospel message. But Paul says, striving side by side. And I wonder if we see the importance of being together. I know that it's important for us to be unified theologically and unified evangelistically. We need to have unity and truth in terms of doctrine and also in terms of pushing and furthering the gospel. But I wonder if we see the importance of being here physically. I praise God that You all are here today to worship God and to learn more about him. But we also do have Bible fellowship groups that meet, where we we do life together, where we share each other's burdens and problems and talk through them and pray through them. Are you availing yourself of that? Are we unified there as well? Do you see the grace in that? Do you see the power in that when we come together as a body to pray for and encourage one another? We also have Wednesday night Bible studies at 630 and we come together to study God's word and to grow in our faith. This is important. Because church, when you leave these grounds, you are still the church. I think sometimes it's I'm a citizen of heaven right up until I pull out that gate and then I'm whatever it is, Monday through Saturday. But we need to be unified in that. We need to be unified in our being together. It's important. You still have a citizenship when you leave here. You still belong to God when you leave here. But don't make any mistake, you still have opponents. When you leave here too, one who walks around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And he's always looking for the weak one, the one that has fallen off behind the trail to pick off. We have to be careful and vigilant, church. The question is always asked Am I my brother's keeper? Yes, yes, you are. We are together in this for the gospel, we are here for one another. And it's vitally important that we are together with one another. We meet together to equip ourselves um, to deal with all that is going to occur out there so that we can contend for the faith of the gospel in dark and sinful times, in this dark and sinful world. And we do not do this alone. This is Paul's point, standing together, striving side by side. We need each other's encouragement, love, fellowship, and sometimes admonishment or rebuke in order to live lives that are worthy of the gospel. Paul wanted the Philippians not only to be united in their attitudes and way of thinking, but also in their contending for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Make it an effort to be here. Be together Yes, it's good that we're here on Sunday and we praise God. We lift up the Lord, we exalt the Lord, we magnify the Lord, we worship and we come together as a people of God on Sunday. But we get beaten up during the week spiritually. We get pushed to and fro uh, by co-workers and by all the other pursuits that close in on us in the world and even in our own hearts where the, the tricks and the traps of this world pull us and, and, and move us towards it instead of towards Christ and we need to come together and remind ourselves being strengthened and empowered to live gospel-centered lives. But thirdly, because we are citizens of heaven, we must be gospel-centered in our courage. In our courage. Notice what Paul says here. He says, and not frightened in anything, by your opponents. Paul had faced considerable opposition throughout his ministry. As a matter of fact, the very reason he was in prison was because of his enemies' hostility towards the gospel. And remember, these opponents that Paul is mentioning here are not the same ones we spoke about last week, right? Some who had selfish ambition and envy. Paul rejoiced in them because they were Christians preaching the gospel, they just had false motives. But these opponents didn't believe the gospel at all. They wanted to see the gospel eradicated. They wanted it stamped out. Some theologians and commentators believe it was the Judaizers, the circumcision party. You know, you're teaching these people about this Messiah. We follow the Torah, we follow the law of Moses. But then you also had pagan um, influences taking place in Philippi as well. So it was pressing in from all angles. And Paul did not want these Philippian believers to be frightened, and the word there for frightened, it actually has the image of a horse being startled, like when a loud noise is made and the horse kind of jumps back. This is is what Paul is saying here uh, with this imagery. He did not want them to be frightened or let themselves become intimidated by these opponents. And he knew that unity and courage were essential features in facing the opposition from the outside world. And notice what he goes on to say here. He says, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction but of your salvation and that from God. When believers stand firm and are not frightened or intimidated by opponents, it sends a twofold message to the world. Their destruction and our salvation. It is supernatural when opposition comes against us and we can stand boldly against it. You look at what's happening in our world right now. There's all kinds of opposition towards the gospel, towards the things of the Bible, where you have um, governments now legalizing abortion, where it's after the baby is born. They have that right now. And I think it's New York and Virginia. These are the times that we're living in. And when we as a church stand boldly and firmly against that and affirm the gospel, striving together in the gospel, we send a clear message to this world of its destruction, of its demise, but we also send that message that we are being saved and that we will be saved. And so as the church stands in solidarity with each other in the gospel, it shows proof that the opponents of God will be destroyed, but that the people of God will be saved. Church, we don't need to be intimidated by the opposition that comes from being Christians. We need to courageously stand for the cause of Christ, knowing that our citizenship is in heaven. We don't need to be frightened by it. You don't need to be frightened or, or intimidated by the co-worker who wants to bully you around about your faith. I'm just not going to, I don't want to deal, I don't want to talk about it. No, we can stand firm in that. That's why it's important to be here so you can grow, so you know what responses you can give. And not to sort of, oh yeah, got you, oosh, kind of thing, but to to give a reason for the hope that is within you, which is exactly what Scripture tells us to do. Make an apologia is the word, a defense for the hope that we have. Can we do that? Or when somebody says, you know what, man, I just, the resurrection just doesn't make any sense to me. That, that, I, I had an exchange with somebody on Facebook, and I've had to kind of stop this, because when you get into these exchanges, they take up your whole time. Like, when somebody is saying, you know what, I, everything, all the Old Testament characters, they're all fake, False. They're false. They're fake. They never existed. And I'm sitting here, I'm arguing, you know, well, that, that's not true. We have there are historical things that back that up. I mean, first of all, the Word of God says it's true, but they're not believing the Word of God, so you try to bring other things to sort of help bolster the argument. This is what apologetics is, right? And you do this, and people are just, man, ransacking and being mean, and, and oh, man, how can you let yourself believe that foolishness? And it, it, it's hurtful. I mean, it, really, it's angering. But you, you kind of just, ah, you know what, I, I don't want to. I don't want to deal with these arguments. I don't, want to, I don't want to get tied up in that. And I'm not, again, Facebook is probably not the best place to have an exchange theologically uh, with people. But every now and again, even virtually, we stand firm for Christ on the Internet. But you don't need to be afraid of people who come at you and, and doubt your faith and put down your faith, opponents of your faith. We need to stand firm And when that happens and when they see that, they can see that this is supernatural. This is different. This is not normal. This is from God. And so that's vitally important. But fourthly, because we are citizens of heaven, we must be gospel centered in our suffering. In our suffering. Look at verse 29. Chapter 1, verse 29, Paul says, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. He says, it has been granted to you to suffer. And that's interesting because the word it has been granted for you, this phrase, it, it, it means that we have been given a gift. It means to give something as a sign of one's benefit or goodwill towards someone. But doesn't that seem weird? Hold on. It's been given me as a gift to suffer. That, no, hold up. That, that doesn't make sense. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, to suffer? But scripture here says it has been granted for you, to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. A sign of God's grace to us is that we suffer? But Paul links the grace of God in our salvation with our suffering. Again, Richard Mellick Jr. points out, the fact that suffering was connected with believing reinforces Paul's claim that it is a grace gift. He goes on, suffering confirms Christians' faith, brings them into closer contact with the Lord and provides a vehicle for making commitment to Christ real and tangible. Listen, when you suffer, and let me make sure that I say this, I'll probably read it, but let me say it, there is a qualification in this suffering. We're not talking about suffering based on consequences here. This is not what Paul is speaking about. When this suffering that has been granted to you by God is suffering for Christ. It is suffering for the cause of Christ. It is experiencing the direct animosity and hostility of this world because you believe in Jesus Christ. This is what Paul is talking about here. And he is saying that is a gift of God. It is by God's grace that you have that. The key is to understand that this is a qualified suffering as I just said. You know, I think Jesus said it best. When he said, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. But look at those last three words on my account. Rejoice, he says, and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus is saying, Blessed are you. This is a blessing. For you, when you are reviled, when people abuse you verbally and say mean things about you and about Jesus and about your faith, blessed are you because you have a reward in heaven. Blessed are you when they do that. Think about Acts 5.41. The Bible says, Speaking of Peter and John, it says, Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They were rejoicing about that. These men had just been beaten. They had been put in jail. They They go before the council in chapter 4, and the council is shocked. These guys aren't learned. These guys aren't intelligent. And yet, they knew that these guys had been with Jesus. And then in chapter 5, again, they say, listen, you got to stop doing this. you got to stop talking about this Jesus person. And they said, listen, whether you judge for yourself whether it's right for us to do that, we can't help but do it. We cannot help but do it. And they counted themselves worthy to suffer shame for the name of Jesus Christ. In our text, Paul knew that the Philippians would encounter the same kind of suffering that he experienced in verse 30 he says engaged in the same conflict that you saw i had and now still here that i have and think about philippians think about philippi the philippians would have remembered this as i just mentioned earlier the the slave girl that paul cast this demon out of right and she no longer can uh you know detect the future and determine the future and give fortune telling basically Paul exercises this demon, and that causes all kinds of consternation at Philippi, because the guys that were using this girl were able to make money off of her. And now that that had stopped, they get mad, because when you play with people's money, evidently, they don't like it. And so (laughs) these guys were upset about it, and they said, listen, get these guys. They're they're turning the city upside down. They're saying things that, that we don't hold to. They're going against the Roman way. And these guys, Paul and, and Silas, are arrested. They're thrown into prison. The, the Philippians would have remembered all this. I mean, keep in mind, it was that very experience, as I mentioned earlier, through that experience of being in prison, singing hymns at 12 in the morning, the Bible says around midnight, and yet there's an earthquake. The earthquake is, uh, releases everybody, but nobody goes anywhere. The Philippians... The jailer pulls out his sword to kill himself and Paul says, whoa, 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 stay your hand. Don't do it. We're all here. And then the Philippians says, what, what must I do to be saved? And he gets saved there. But the Philippians would have remembered that. This was something that they would have been uh, very clear about. That conflict of the world, that world opposition is what I'm speaking about here. They would have remembered that. The point is that A gospel centered view of suffering understands two things. Number one, suffering from a gospel perspective, it is by the grace of God. And number two, it is for the cause of Christ. This kind of suffering does four things. I wanna lay these out really quickly. The kind of suffering I'm talking about, a gospel-centered suffering, a suffering that understands I'm from heaven, I got my citizenship there, I'm going to be going through difficulty here because of the sake of Christ, that kind of gospel-centered suffering does four things. Number one, it takes our eyes off of earthly comforts. It reminds us that we are not of this world and should not get comfortable here. Our citizenship is in heaven. Don't get comfortable in this world. This world is not your final resting place. But secondly, it weeds out superficial believers. True believers are those who persevere in suffering. And immediately, you think of Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 13, verses 20 and 21, when he explained the parable. Remember, he he gives the parable of the sower and the seeds and the disciples say, what what was that? We don't understand. You got to explain that to us. And then Jesus said, as for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. The kind of suffering, the gospel-centered suffering that I'm talking about is a a revealer of who truly is saved. The people who are just nominal Christians, Christians in name only, they fall away. because They never really were Christians to begin with. But people who truly are Christians, they persevere. And this kind of suffering weeds out that spiritual superficiality. But thirdly, it strengthens the faith of those who endure. James chapter one, Verses two through four says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. He says, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And that word perfect there just means mature. But fourthly, this kind of suffering, this gospel-centered suffering serves as an example to others who may follow us. They're looking at us. How are they able to hold up under that kind of uh, difficulty? And, And again, we're not talking about the suffering that I spoke about last week with circumstances and illness and that kind of thing. I'm speaking specifically about the suffering you encounter because you're a Christian. But I wonder if we need to ask ourselves the questions, if we don't experience that kind of suffering, the kind of suffering that comes from being a Christian, are we really living lives that show we are Christians, if we just have this ease, no problems, no hiccups, nothing, nobody's attacking, nobody is saying false or whatever or coming at us, are we really embracing, have we, are we really living out the gospel? Church, because we have our citizenship in heaven, we must live gospel-centered lives. Our manner of living must be worthy of the gospel. Our unity must be grounded in the gospel. Our courage must come through the truth of the gospel and our suffering is for the sake of Christ and his gospel. There are some of you here who don't have a citizenship in heaven. You've not repented of your sin and put faith in Christ and so your citizenship is an earthly one only. Because of your sin, The Bible says that you are alienated from God and hostile toward God. This is what characterizes people who are citizens of this world. They are hostile and they are separated from God. But only having an earthly citizenship, church, leads to eternal separation from God in hell forever. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death. But praise God, the verse doesn't stop there. God would have been perfectly just in stopping the verse there. But it says, but the free gift of God is the eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. The good news is that Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay for your sins. Those of you here who don't know him, He died to pay for the sins of the world. He died to satisfy the wrath of Almighty God against sin. The Bible says, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God and that for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Church, people who are here, maybe you don't know Christ, don't leave here today having not come to know Jesus Christ. Don't leave here today with only an earthly citizenship. That earthly citizenship leads to eternal damnation. Receive the grace of God that is available by repenting of your sin and putting your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is so vitally important and if anybody here does not know Jesus, be more than happy to speak with you, talk with you, pray with you, help you think through that and what that means. Church we need to live gospel-centered lives. We need to be gospel-centered in our consistency, our walk and our talk. We need to be gospel-centered in our unity, no backbiting, no divisiveness, but there is agreement, one attitude. We need to be unified and gospel-centered in our courage, not shirking away from the world, afraid of the world, but taking the world head on, knowing that we have a savior who is risen, as we sang earlier. But we need to be gospel-centered in our suffering, knowing that when we suffer for the sake of Christ and his gospel, we're truly blessed. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its truth. God, help us to live lives centered on the gospel. Help us to do this because we know that we have a citizenship in heaven. Thank you for securing that citizenship through the death, burial, and resurrection of your son. Would you help us to live our lives in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Christ? For we pray it in Jesus' name.